0: Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning into this series, which focuses on rural health in the Midwest. Over 10 episodes, we talk with people in a variety of communities about their experiences and perspectives on rural life, employment, and health. Our aim is to deepen understanding of the complexity of rural life and celebrate rural areas. We're so happy you're listening and learning along with us. Welcome back to the Rural Health series of Share Public Health. Today we're going to talk about healthcare delivery in rural areas. We'll talk with a healthcare provider, a nonprofit leader, and a hospital administrator in the next hour. I learned a lot in these conversations and I'm glad you're joining us. Our first guest today is Dr. Jessica Williams. Dr. Williams is a dentist at River Hills Community Health Center in the Southeast Iowa town of Ottumwa. She tells us a bit about her background.
1: I'm originally from North of Chicago, Um, I went to um, college at Howard University in Washington, D.C., and then back to Chicago um, for dental school. And then I applied for the National Health Service Corps program, and I ended up in Ottumwa, Iowa. Um, But that was by my choice. So some programs are a little bit more flexible than others, but um, when I was looking at places to apply to, Ottumwa really stuck out to me, and I applied, and so here I am.
0: Not to state the obvious, but Chicago and Washington, D.C. are big places. The third and sixth largest metro areas in the United States, respectively. I asked what the move was like and what surprised her most when she came to Ottumwa.
1: I'll say that it surprised me how... (laughs) how people are it's the quality definitely surprised me because everything is pretty low cost or like I said, doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles seem really modern, but the quality of a product is still there. The quality of the service is still there. And so that's why I really do tell people, I'm like, it's really great. It's a win-win because it's low cost of living, but also very high quality of life. And so that's one of the things that pleasantly surprised me about moving to a rural town um, such as Tumwa. And that is something that I really do try to highlight to people is that, yeah, you know, some of these places have bells and whistles and whatnot. But I would say that, like I said, the quality of the, of the product and the service is definitely meets um, that standard in an urban or a metro area coming again from Chicago to Ottumwa, I'm like, oh my God, this is such a small town. But then once I got there and I learned that people were from even smaller towns and this was a big city for them, I was just like, oh my gosh, it's really all relative. I tell some people, I actually, I always like hearing about some people's population of the town that they're from, fewer people than who went to my high school. And I'm like, my graduating class was more than the people in your town.
0: I love this part of Jessica's story. She's been at home in a major city and in rural Southeast Iowa, but that doesn't explain why she's in Ottumwa. Jessica says she practices public health dentistry. Listen as she explained what attracted her to public health and to moving to rural America.
1: When I was in college, I knew that I wanted to work in a community health center. And so that was always on my mind. And when I was coming to the end of dental school, um, loans, I'm just going to be honest, loans was a huge factor for me. And so um, I heard about the National Health Service Corps scholarship, where you could, where you could work in a community health center, but also um, receive assistance for paying off your loans. And so for me, that was a win-win. I was like, oh, this is perfect, because I know I, I want to work in a community health center. Uh, that's, not, that's something that really interests me. But also, I would have assistance paying off my loans. And so because, again, I knew I wanted to do the National Health Service Corps and I wanted to uh, work in a community health center, I said, why not do a national search? Even though I'm here in Chicago, I could find a clinic in Chicago. I was like, why not? This is a one in a chance of a lifetime where you get where I could go anywhere in the country. Uh, So I just did a national search and I just looked at different clinics and looked at their missions and looked at, you know, the opportunities that they had and River Hills was a great clinic and I, you know, I talked to them and so I already kind of in my mind had the mindset that I was going to be in a very rural area or or something like that, just because, again, I was thinking of doing the National Health Service Corps, And typically, that's what deters people from it is, oh, you end up in the middle of nowhere. So I had always in my mind thought, yeah, I'm from Chicago, I'm used to urban um, settings, but I'll probably be in a rural community. So that's why, again, it wasn't like, oh, no, I can't work there. So that's why I was very open to that possibility of of Atoma, Iowa. Um, So like I said, I just, I did a national search, came upon River Hills. The people were just super warm, super friendly. And that's really what drew me to that clinic and why I accepted the offer is just because the people were great. They were, they were wonderful people. And public health is really difficult, public health service, um, public health dentistry, and if you're not working with people who, you know, really share your values, share your mission, um, and, you know, you want to be able to get along with your colleagues when you're doing very difficult work. So for me, it was really the people who, who made, <laughs> made me think, oh, okay, so this will be a really nice place to work.
0: Jessica just said public health is a difficult field. I think we recognize this now in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. But I don't think we said this enough before the pandemic, and I'm not sure people entering public health as a profession know this.
1: You're dealing with very complex situations. So you're, I'm not just dealing with a tooth that needs a filling. I'm dealing with a tooth that needs a filling from somebody who has diabetes, um, anxiety, COPD, asthma, Um, they're coming off of a meth addiction, they're borderline homeless, they have trouble getting transportation to the clinic, they're going to need a lot of specialty care. So things can get really, really complicated and really complex um, when we're serving populations that are vulnerable, that are very high risk. And so that's really what makes it difficult is having to deal with so many different parts of healthcare delivery is, and it really does show how the social determinants of health all play into health delivery, but also health outcomes. So like I said, transportation, social um, history, dental history, medical history, all of that plays into um, just, again, doing that filling. And so that's what can make public health delivery a little bit different than in a private practice.
0: I asked Dr. Williams how dental school prepared her for public health dentistry.
1: Dental schools are largely a safety net for people who are low income, vulnerable populations, because a lot of dental schools offer um, reduced fees and And lower costs. And so, again, a lot of people end up going to the dental school for the care that they need if they can't afford it elsewhere. So, you really do get a taste of the needs of your community around your dental school. And, like you said, we did do rotations as well and in the community at community clinics. And that also gives you another taste of the needs in the community. So, you really get a good foundation of public health dentistry um, in, when you're going through your dental school training.
0: Jessica explains what is different about practicing in a rural area compared to an urban
1: area. The needs are similar. The people, the demographics are different. The access to care is also a little bit different because if you're walking down the street in Chicago, Or Washington, D.C., New York, you'll see a dentist on every block, or maybe multiple dentists on a block. But how many people can go into that office for care? How many people can afford it? How many people have the insurance that's accepted? So, access to care in an urban setting, what I found was large, the barrier was largely finances. Whereas in a rural community, the barrier is also, it can also be finances and insurance but there are fewer providers. So like I said, maybe not it's not a dentist on every block necessarily, but one or two dentists spread out here and there. But if they don't take your insurance, then of course still you're not not—you're not in luck. But the issue is, like I said, there are really not that many providers. And so you end up having to travel a very far distance to get the care that you need. So then that talks, you know, then the biggest access, the, or the biggest barrier to access to care is transportation because your providers are just so far away or the providers that you need at the time are so far away. So that's what I found was the largest difference between urban and rural was really transportation to the dental clinic.
0: She has a lot of good things to say about working in a rural community.
1: Some of the positive aspects of practicing in a rural community, I would say, are being able to really connect with your patients and really build a relationship with them. Like I said, with public health, it can public health can be challenging, but it can also be rewarding because you do know all of the different factors that this patient is coming to you with. And so you really are able to build this connection and this relationship, this this patient provider relationship with them. So, you know, we can talk about, oh, you know, I see that you've stopped smoking. Yeah, I stopped smoking for, it's been about two weeks now. And it's like, oh, great. You know, what's helped you do that? Oh, Oh, my grandmother had this going on. And so, you know, I wasn't able to smoke a lot. So it's like, you're just getting to really, know your patients. And I find that that's really rewarding because being a safety net clinic, you do end up seeing um, a lot of patients and their families and um, it really does become a dental home. And so, like I said, building that relationship with your patients, I think is really possible because we are in a rural community and because we are that only safety net in the area so we really do get to see our patients and build a connection with them and their families.
0: River Hills, where Jessica practices, is unique in that it offers integrated comprehensive care.
1: The integration of the different professional fields is one of the reasons why I selected River Hills is because it had all of the different services in that one clinic. For me, medical dental integration is really important. I really do see that connection and I really try to promote to other people that connection of oral health to the overall health. And I knew that as a provider, I needed to be able to speak with other health professionals about my patient because I don't just want to treat a tooth. I want to treat the individual. And so that was really important to me when selecting a place to practice is to be able to talk with the primary care physician, to talk with the behavioral health, to talk with the pediatrician about the patient's care, about the patient's overall health. So yes, River Hills offers um, more than just dentistry, like I said, medical, behavioral, women's, it offers comprehensive care. And really what we see is that comprehensive care is the best care for a patient. So medical, dental integration, feels was really important to me when selecting a clinic. It's funny that we talk about oral health and dentistry as being separate from general healthcare. Oral health is connected to overall health. And the mouth is the portal to the rest of the body. We can't separate the two. And for too long, it's been separated, seen as a separate entity when it really does impact the rest of the body. And so when we talk about overall health, when we talk about population health, we're, just like you're only as strong as your weakest link, you're only as healthy as your health, least healthiest person. And a lot of people, what you'll find is that they're, you know, missing teeth or that they have had how many emergency, how many times have they been to the emergency room in the past year for a dental problem. So those are all things that you can really evaluate in a community to get an idea of the health of that community.
0: Earlier in our conversation, Jessica mentioned that access to care is different in rural areas. She tells us more about where people can go for specialized dental care.
1: It depends on the insurance, honestly. Um, so a lot of patients, like I said, we end up referring to the University of Iowa because that is the, that's really the safety net for um, our Medicaid populations and people who are really low income, can't pay much out of pocket. So University of Iowa is usually our safety net for people who have have really specialized needs. Luckily, Iowa is great because they did recognize that transportation may be an issue. So there are options for people to get transportation um, if they do have um, Medicaid. So that's a great, that's a great thing. Um, but for the most part, transportation is largely, it's, oh, how do I get up there? Or I can't take off work because it's also time. So maybe you do have transportation, but you just don't have the time to carve out, to travel about an hour and a half, two hours up there, only to have a procedure take about four hours and then have to drive back. I mean, that's a huge, huge chunk of time out of somebody's day.
0: Dr. Williams talks about the importance of programs that exist to help un- or underinsured Iowans.
1: So this is where, when we're talking about Iowa specifically, programs like iSmile and iSilver are super important. Um, Programs like these that connect community resources, departments, agencies, and healthcare centers, uh, medical providers, dental providers, all together to get kids and older adults the care that they need. Um and been huge um, in our community. And it's a or it's a huge, makes a hugely positive impact on our community to be able to connect people through those community resources so they can get the care, so the children can get the care that they need. And we'll also find, we also found that with COVID, of course, and I don't think this is just our rural communities, but all communities have found how important it is to have a connection with your public health department. And so connecting with your public health department and sharing data and sharing um, and sharing resources and even sharing workforces and collaborating with each other and keeping each other up to date on everything, we're finding is super, super important.
0: Recognizing the importance
1: of collaborating with public health,
0: Jessica explains what that means.
1: Like I said, what we find in public health dentistry and primary care is that the social determinants of health really do impact people from getting the care that they need. And the health department is the community resource that can bring in different professionals to help, again, people getting the care that they need. So we really need to be a part of that, dentists do. Because like I said, if we're going to do medical-dental integration, then we really do need to start becoming more, if not already, more involved with the public health department. The public health department oversees all health in all things, and dentistry is health as well, so it needs to be included in that.
0: Telehealth is a big topic these days. I was curious if telehealth and dentistry could ever go together.
1: There is a huge, huge opportunity to connect people to care Uh, a lot of times we're finding they don't you don't need need to actually come to a clinic you just need to talk to a professional and maybe see the professional but maybe they don't need to physically be in the clinic and just think about how many people we can benefit by just allowing, allowing them access to those services those platforms especially yeah, primary care, behavioral health. It's, it's a great, great um, opportunity to connect again, people to care. But with, with dentistry, it was a little, it was a little difficult because it's like, okay, well, how are you going to do dentistry? (laughs) And we need to touch the patient. Well, no, we actually, we are finding out maybe we don't need to touch them as much as we thought, Maybe we don't need to actually have them in the chair as much as we thought. So even in dentistry, we're finding that telehealth can be of good use. Jessica is a great
0: advocate for public health and for her patients. She shares why this is especially important for rural patients.
1: I would say when it comes to rural health, um, We really do have to have more opportunities like this where we can advocate for our rural patients and our rural communities because voices can largely get drowned out. And we have very, even though we have similar needs, we also have some things that are more unique to rural communities, um, barriers to care, so barriers to care for rural communities include transportation huge huge barrier Um, not a lot of providers in the area recruitment and retention so there are some um, things that we really should be trying to focus on when it comes to how do we strengthen our rural communities how do we strengthen the health care that's provided to rural communities so uh, Broadband, broad internet access, huge um, provider recruitment and retention. How do we get providers like myself who's through National Health Service Corps or through other loan repayment? What can we do to attract more healthcare workers to the area? So maybe transportation doesn't become a problem. So you have the wonderful problem of oh, which person should I choose to go to because I have the insurance that could that could be used at any any provider. So there are things that are very unique to rural communities that we really need to be at the forefront and be discussing in conversations when it comes to uh, increasing access to care.
0: Dr. Williams' last comments here are a great transition to our next guest and her experience in rural health care delivery. Rachel Goss is the Executive Director of the Family Planning Council of Iowa, which is sometimes shortened to FIPSI, and she may say that throughout our conversation. Rachel lives in Eddyville, Iowa, which is near Ottumwa where Dr. Williams lives. Rachel is a mom and an Army veteran, and she has worked in rural healthcare for a number of years. Currently, she works in Des Moines, so she is a super commuter, at least 90 minutes each way, in good weather and without traffic. Before diving into her role in healthcare delivery, she tells us a bit about why she loves living in a small town.
2: The people really care about each other um, as neighbors and friends. Even, you know, I just think about our, our local gas station and, you know, I say our local gas station, you know, singular, um, or, you know... Melody's restaurant downtown, when you walk in, you really are treated like family. Um, And so I think anytime we hear of somebody in the community that's struggling or a family that has a need, people step up and respond in a way that's non-threatening. And it just feels very wholesome for lack of a better word. Um, So you know, not that there aren't perks to living in, um, or thriving in an urban area. I definitely love the city. I love coming to Des Moines. I love downtown Des Moines. You cannot beat the friendliness um, of a rural Iowan, and you won't convince me otherwise. I've only lived in Eddyville about six months, but I was living in a Temwa for the last five years. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have commuted from... A smaller community to Des Moines for work for at least three, four years. But that's how much I love that small town feel. And just, you know, I've considered moving to the city many times, but I'm a single mom raising two latchkey kids, you know, because I do go to work and have a job. And, and while the commute keeps me on the road, I feel really safe. I know every single student, I know every single parent, you know, there are just some real benefits. Um, And I actually lived in this community um, back, you know, 10 or 12 years ago when my children were born and came back um, just because I loved it so much.
0: Now Rachel tells us about her career and how she ended up at the Family Planning Council of Iowa.
2: I started in healthcare as an x-ray tech. So, working on the, the front lines of service delivery and have just sort of slowly worked my way up, if you will, um, into healthcare administration. My role previous to this position, I was the surgical services director for Planned Parenthood. And then prior to that, I spent um, the rest of my years in critical access hospitals um, in Southeast Iowa primarily. So I've worked um, also at the University of Iowa for a short period of time. So as um, front lines x-ray tech, um, that was many years ago. So I do really feel like I have a good idea of What separates, you know, really urban or large health systems from, you know, the care that's delivered in, in the smaller communities?
0: While FIPSI is in Des Moines, the organization supports providers across the state. I was curious what is different about care in rural areas?
2: I think one of the biggest challenges that we're seeing right now is access, so I think that is across the board, but you know, particularly challenging for family planning as there's just a lack of rural healthcare providers in general, um, so it can be hard to get an appointment. This is why I would say expansion of broadband access to rural areas and telehealth is so important because I do see a real opportunity with a lot of the services that we provide in family planning, not necessarily being so hands-on, if you will. It's a lot of times a dialogue between a provider and a patient or a nurse and a patient and decision-making versus actual clinical care. So I think there's a lot of opportunity Uh, access is primarily an issue and then taking it a step farther, you know, if you're in a rural area, there might not be as many pharmacies. The pharmacy that you go to might not carry the birth control method, for instance, that you desire to have. Um, so really it can be supply management issue. And then one of the, you know, biggest things I see too is confidentiality. You know, all health care is personal. All healthcare is bound by federal, you know, privacy laws. However, that doesn't mean it's easier to have a conversation with somebody that you might see outside of your community, you know, at at a social setting, for instance, about what birth control method might be right for you or a sexually transmitted infection or some strange symptoms. Um, So that often, I think those three things I would say would be the biggest, you know, challenges to reproductive health care delivery in rural areas.
0: We know there are shortages of all sorts of professionals and specialists in rural areas. But how does this impact reproductive health care?
2: It could be probably at least an hour in some cases, or generally an hour in many cases. Um, There are just specific um, demographics, areas of the state at FIPC, we call them service delivery areas, where there is just a real lack of providers and access. Um, and even willingness, at, in some cases, to provide basic uh, reproductive health care, sexual health services, such as even uh, something as simple as birth control. Um, so we have been at FIPC actively trying to engage with providers in these what we like to call contraception deserts. Um, however, it we were making ground pre-pandemic, and then you know now here we are in the middle of a public health crisis. Um, CEOs are not knocking down our door to work with us, um, you know, and, and rightfully, you know, in some ways so, although many would argue that, you know, access to birth control and those services is more important now than ever.
0: So a few minutes ago, we heard from Dr. Williams about what she thinks are the benefits of providing care in rural areas. I asked Rachel the same question. Notice she answers the question in a pretty similar way. You get
2: to know your patients on such a a more personal level than you could ever imagine in that large delivery system, so much so that they trust you to the point where they even um, consider you family, if you will, Um, they're sending you, you know, handwritten Christmas cards, they're stopping by your office with cookies and brownies, and sometimes even, you know, small gifts, you know, to to their healthcare provider, because they really see them as an extension of their family. Um, With that, as a provider becomes some privilege of additional health history, you see them in the community, you know, you might go to sporting events, you know, Again, this is much pre-pandemic, um, but, you know, you get an intimate knowledge of your patient and they have you and that trust just really increases the opportunity to provide really personal quality care.
0: If one of the benefits of being a rural health care provider is how much you get to know your patients. One of the challenges that comes with a shortage of specialists is also a shortage of relationships those specialists can have with their patients.
2: I think family planning services, again, take a back seat to primary health care as priority. So when I think about two specialty providers and Rural hospitals kind of managing a lot of those extra physicians, and in many of our communities, you know, you're not going to have a podiatrist in town. You might have a primary, you know, care specialist, but, you know, they might have an independent clinic or be working as part of a small hospital. But then, you know, if you need a gastroenterologist if you need a reproductive health care specialist oftentimes patients in rural areas are faced with two choices you drive to a more urban area you know at additional cost and time and time off work and we have to think about all those things or You wait a month or more for that traveling specialist to come through your hospital where they, I can tell you, you know, from personal experience at multiple hospitals, the schedules are packed, the nurses often come with them, um, rural patients aren't as comfortable uh, seeing those doctors that come from the big city um, and they don't have that level of trust established so You know, as a as a clinical worker, you can just hear their health history or their story just is not taken into as much consideration, I think, as it could be um, if they were able to get care, you know, through someone they knew and trusted. Also with those sort of traveling physician schedules, something I notice unique to rural areas. A lot of the people that live in rural areas are part of the farming community or, or a um, manufacturing community. And when I think about those, those farmers that need that type of care, if the weather's good or if it's a certain time of the year, they will miss those appointments um, if they can't flex to a rainy day. And, and that is just the facts. So literally, we would have at certain doctor's offices I've worked with in the past, a short call list of farmers. Let's get them in. It's raining today. We know they're not going to be out in the field. Um, So that's the sort of positives about it. Are you really know those folks? It's just um, a layer of intricacy that um, is like nothing else I've ever seen.
0: Rachel's about to tell us a little bit about the Family Planning Council of Iowa. They have a fairly unique setup.
2: So the nice thing and what's unique about the Family Planning Council, or FIPC, is we subcontract all of our health services. So while we receive federal grant funds through the Title X program to give the very best care in sexual and reproductive health, we're actually doing that by contracting, for instance, with local public health departments or smaller federally qualified health centers, Um, or, you know, critical access um, sized hospitals. So we're able to keep the care in the communities that are willing to have us there. And, you know, that that funding goes right back to the local level. And so that's why I love the job that I have and what I think that we have an opportunity to do. um, Because while we're keeping it local, we also have our finger on the pulse of what is the most up-to-date information regarding contraceptive access and care? How can we give this information to the providers and make it really easy for them to deliver the type of care in the setting our patients are comfortable with? Um, So that's kind of why the position is unique and why I really like um, the job that I have now because it's an opportunity to increase the quality of care Um, at the local level, while maintaining also a level of consistency. We're definitely not alone in how we deliver services. However, I think that there are some states that, you know, deliver this type of grant or service through primarily one entity or agency. And, you know, one of the things I've learned this past year is It sometimes can be really good to have a little bit of a variety in the service delivery because when we have to respond to an issue or a crisis, such as a global pandemic, you're going to find out really quickly what works and what doesn't. And if the communication is good between all of these agencies, and and FIPC tries really hard to be that kind of hub to bring all of our agencies back together regarding family planning and reproductive health. What can we be sharing with everyone in a streamlined, succinct way? How can we support these agencies? I have to say, I think when people hear the word family planning, everyone's heads automatically go to, oh, Planned Parenthood is the best and the only place to get, you know, care let me say, and i you know, stated it previously. I, I've been an employee of Planned Parenthood. Fipsy wants to be good partners, you know, with Planned Parenthood, we have mutually exclusive, um, goals. However, um, they're not the only player in the game. Um, you know, we worked, we worked really hard, um, through the federal title 10 program to make sure that rural Iowans have access to care. And, um, our network doesn't include um, any Planned Parenthoods at this time. Uh, so I think it's important for people to also understand that, you know, the program that that we are referring to through the federal Title X program is based on your ability to pay. So there's a possibility, you know, to base, based on your family size and income that you might not have to pay anything for your birth control or STI testing or your sexual or reproductive health needs. I would also say um, there's two things. So, so that would be one thing I think that's important for people to know is, you know, there are other very qualified people in your community that can, that can help you figure out your, your birth control or reproductive health care needs. The other piece I think that it's important um, to call out or I wish people new were that there are um federal confidentiality laws within um our title 10 program. So if you're coming to a, a FIPSI um sponsored family planning clinic, um even teens can get um confidential sexual and reproductive health care such as a birth control prescription without having to go through their parents or use their parents' insurance or have their parents inc- income uh used as a basis for determination on whether or not they can pay so while we encourage you know adolescents and teens to talk with their parents um, about birth control we also recognize that there are times when that just isn't an option uh, for teens and you know youth and we don't want that to be a barrier to care
0: our final guest today is jim Atty. jim is the ceo of the hospital in waverly iowa He's worked in a couple other critical access hospitals in Iowa and has been in Waverly for nearly seven years. He told me why he moved to Waverly a few years ago and a bit about what the town is like.
3: Waverly specifically, um, again, I'm from this side of the state, and so uh, it has been nice being this close, but really it's it's been more about the work. So trying trying to find something that's been a good fit for me and my family uh, and Waverly was interestingly enough uh, a place that I interned at, um, or excuse me, I interned for a, a consulting company while I was in grad school. And we had a project with Waverly, and we came up here. And my boss at the time had nothing but good things to say about Waverly and about the hospital. And so it was, it was always one of those facilities in the back of my mind. And when the opportunity arose, And we really started looking into it. It, it really, it really shined. It's a, it's a great, it's a great facility. It's a strong facility. Um, but more importantly, it's a good community one where I feel safe, uh, with my kids riding their bikes, wherever they want to ride their bikes, sometimes maybe a little too far, but, um, uh, but they're, they're out and about have opportunities to, to learn and grow. Um, there are resources for us here. There's a great, there's great schools, great churches, and and just a great community. And so, you know, why I came here was sort of on a on a on a whim, right? It was my it was my boss's uh, recommendation. But the reason that we stayed here is because it's it it truly does have everything we we want and need. So Waverly is kind of a rare bird in Iowa. It's one of the a uh, few rural growing counties. And we also have uh, an average age underneath um, the the state average. So again, a couple of unique things for um, for rural Iowa. Uh, we're located just north of Blackhawk County. Uh, Bremer, Iowa has about, uh, I'm sorry, Waverly, Iowa has about 10,000 people, which is a majority of the population in our county. We're right next to Butler, uh, Chickasaw and Floyd County, which we consider parts of those counties our um, our primary market as well. Uh, So right when you get north of Waterloo Cedar Falls, the state starts to get a little bit more rural. And once you get north of Waverly, it starts to get even more rural. And we we try to service an area of about 55,000 people in that uh, multi-county area.
0: I don't know much about critical access hospitals, so that's where we're going to start this conversation.
3: So we're a critical access hospital, 25 beds, four of which are labor and delivery. Uh, we're about 120 plus million gross, uh, gross revenue, 500 employees, and our uh, employed medical staff is in the 40s. So from, you know, if we break that down a little bit more, a majority of them are primary care. Uh, we do have five, uh, a five-member team of uh, OB-GYNs that includes a nurse practitioner and a midwife. We have two general surgeons, one of which does, um, he's in our general surgery department, but does advanced laparoscopic uh, and does bariatric surgery. And then we partner with um, Cedar Valley medical specialists primarily uh, to provide some specialist care. We employ our own emergency room docs. So we have a five team rotation there and three uh, licensed practitioners that serve um, in some capacity. Uh, to try to help out during the during the busier times, three hospitalists that take rotations and and cover all hospital work, and um, I think the most unique thing though about our hospital is that we also have a four person um, uh, mental health team. So as we see the erosion of mental health services across the across the state as well, we've kind of leaned into it and you know realized that this is something that our community really needs and. Uh, we try our best to we try our best to plug all those holes. You know unfortunately, the running joke is is that we could build we could build a, a, a psych hospital and hire everybody that wants to come and work here. and um, the hospital would be full that psych hospital would be full and we'd have everybody extremely busy. but um, the resources just are absolutely not there. And so we try to do what we can.
0: That sounds like a pretty big hospital, actually, bigger than I had expected. Jim tells us about some of the challenges with delivering care in this setting.
3: So Waverly is kind of the best of both worlds uh, in a a sense. We are small and rural by definition, but um, a fairly affluent community for, again, rural Iowa. Uh, Our major employers are a large insurance company, Wartburg College, um, and we have a very broad mix of manufacturers in the area. And so that again, just a little bit more unique than you would see in other towns that are, uh, you know, really based on one or two different industries or don't have that good uh, blue, white collar mix. Okay. Um, But when we start looking at some of the surrounding areas that we serve, you do run into travel time issues, you run into how can we um, bring them uh, bring the resources towards them. You know, you're hearing more about OBGYN deserts and labor and delivery deserts that are starting to crop up all over the state. And so, if you were to drive west, you can drive almost an hour and a half, if I'm not mistaken, before you find uh, another um, labor and delivery unit. Uh, so, yet, I, I think that as you continue to move out further and further, you start to you start to really find that there are gaps in, gaps in services. Ambulance is another one. Um, are we getting good primary care out to these people? Or like I said, if we have a um, pregnant mom, are we able to get um, mom good prenatal care?
0: Since 2000, at least 35 hospitals in Iowa have closed birthing units. Half of Iowa's counties don't have birthing centers.
3: Well, last year we delivered a, a woman who drove 45 minutes by herself in labor. You know, I mean, the woman is in active labor. The only way she had to get here, she jumped in her car last week. We delivered a, we delivered a woman who uh, drove a half hour away um, in the, like the vestibule walking into our building. We laid her down and baby was on its way and we delivered right there. I mean, that's not, that's, we did what we had to do, but that's, that's totally unsafe. And that's just, so scary for mom and for baby. God forbid, you know, baby was breached or something, you know, something else was that. Anyways, it's very scary. I think some of, the, some of the challenges in rural care delivery is, you know, we can struggle for identity to a degree. What do we want to be for our community? I don't know that it makes sense that every rural hospital is everything to everybody. And so trying to figure out what we're good at and making sure that what we're doing, um, we're delivering at a at a very high quality and um, we're delivering good patient care. We don't have the depth and breadth of resources that a lot of other facilities have either. Um, So a larger facility might have a bank of 15 hospitalists that are taking rotations. We have three. Um, And if one were to get sick and be out for shift or two, or God forbid longer, then we're trying to cobble up uh, a one in two hospitalist coverage as opposed to a a one in three. And so the same thing goes for nursing, the same, same thing goes for radiology tax, the same thing goes for lab, the same thing goes across the board. And so our, we don't have the breadth of staffing to tr- to be insulated, um, especially in a time of COVID where you can really take, take out your staffing um, at its knees and you can have somebody out for 14 days, or I think they just changed the rules to 10 days um, but to take one person out when we're extremely reliant on that one person uh, becomes extremely difficult. I think one of, the, one of the good things, and I hope we get some momentum here, is that we have been able to connect with our patients through, um, through telehealth uh, and through you know, just video, whether it's video conferencing or just by phone. Um, and that the mental health population that we serve has an extremely high no-show rate. Um, by allowing us to, to deliver to deliver care through the telemethods, we've been able to reach them and reduce our no-show rate to about zero over this time period. Now, Iowa unfortunately remains one of the laggards in that we, we do not have telehealth parity. Uh, and so we haven't gotten paid for it except for this, um, uh, the emergency declaration by the governor. And so I'm hoping that we can show that look, this is, a, this is a valuable service and that mental health services are, are a little bit unique and look at all the good that we've been able to do. Um, so let's see if that has some legs and, and if we can get something done in session next year.
0: That no-show rate is incredible. Expanding telehealth services long-term could really change the access issues we've heard about from all of our guests today. A quick update on Jim's comment that Iowa doesn't have telehealth parity As I'm recording this, there's a bill in the legislature to address telehealth reimbursement.
3: Insurance companies just have to be willing to pay for it. I mean, it's, we're one of the few remaining states that won't pay for it. and that's ridiculous. When people can't travel and we can prove that there is good, that there's uh, good equity uh, among whether you're tele and or in person. I mean, it's not for everything, right? You're not going to set somebody's broken, broken leg (laughs) or video, but but if, we can ha- if you can have your follow-up mental health conference with somebody, that's great.
0: Jim shared some of the benefits of working in a small local hospital.
3: The biggest positive is that your community really knows who you are and is extremely supportive. Um, if you're doing the right thing, I think the, the community, if they love their community, they also love the hospital. They realize that we're one of the foundational pieces I I always shy away from uh, those that talk about the hospital being the economic driver and lean more towards us being an economic foundation. So if you have good schools, you have good hospital, um, you have good public services, those should be the antecedents for uh, somebody to want to come and move here, build their house and start their life or better yet for a business to come and want to um, set up shop here in your town. it, the hospital should be there so that everybody, it should be the springboard that everybody else has to, to help them grow. People realize that. We have the benefits of critical access, but are still large enough in an affluent enough community that we can, um, we can try new things and we can continue to try to um, invest in this facility, whereas some smaller hospitals might not have that luxury.
0: We often hear about shortages of providers. Jim shared his thoughts on how Waverly is able to attract physicians and other staff.
3: I think a few different things. Um, You'd be surprised how many people want to come back to this community. Um, I'm not from here, but I completely understand why those that have been here um, want to end up here. So we have quite a few providers that either grew up went to high school here or came here, went to Warburg and have said, you know what, we'd like to come back to Waverly. And we obviously welcome them with open arms. I think the other thing that we have going for us is that we have, um, we have a compensation model that's a little bit different. Um, we, we pay our docs and a salary as opposed to based on um, as opposed to based on production and why that's important is what we end up doing is we end up valuing the quality of care that they give. And we value um, the time that they spend with their patients. And we try not to get in the way of their, of their ability to connect and, and work with the patient. So I don't want uh, a timer going off in the back of their head that says, you know what, I've already been in here 10 minutes. I got to hurry up to get to my next patient so that I can make sure that I maximize my, my paycheck. No, we, we take that out and um, we put patient care first. And I think our providers, once they get here, they really like that.
0: I've been surprised in this conversation to learn about the different services and specialties available at the Waverly Health Center. I asked Jim if there are things they do that folks in the community might be surprised to learn about.
3: We have a surgeon who is doing um, gastric proce- or gastric sleeves and he's doing them with this minimal, uh, um, minimally invasive uh, procedure. And he's one of a, just a few in a very, very large geographic area that's doing it. It's extremely successful, and it is um, a fantastic weight loss uh, option for those that have tried a few other things and, and haven't found it successful. Um, it's, he truly changes lives every day. Um, one of the good things about that is that when he did come to us, it, it really got us to start thinking about, you know, what are we doing for healthy lifestyles earlier on? And it got us to think about, you know, do we have our dietitians um, in place, uh, exercise science? Do we have people that are, that are helping these individuals maybe curb some of their bad habits or get their weight under control before they get to that surgical option? And we feel like when he was here, he he really got us thinking about putting the pieces in place so that we offer a very wide, um, uh, very wide array of weight loss options. And ultimately, if those don't work, we have the surgical. We have the surgical option at the end that hopefully um, uh, hopefully gives that individual the tool to be successful. I think the other thing that you'd be you'd be surprised with is, is the, um, the the compassionate care that's delivered. Uh, I know a lot of places see that, but really we've been awarded for it, you know, many times over the years, and um, continually, uh, our providers do put that. Um, our providers and our, and our staff, excuse me, um, really do make that uh, a key focus in their in their day to day work.
0: Jim shares how the hospital works with public health.
3: Partnership is primarily with uh, Bremer Butler County Public Health. Uh, and so most recently, um, keep making sure to keep the lines of communication open with the, the public health departments. They're getting a lot of information. We're getting a lot of information. They have resources. We have resources. And so when dealing with this pandemic, we were really trying to um Really, just circle our wagons and say, "Okay, so what do you guys have here? What do we have here? What should we do in this situation?" One of the one of the successes that we had was we had a um, a, a countywide testing um, that was set up by public health and that we helped with. But we felt like it was a good idea. Uh, emergency management came in to help um, as well. But just trying to realize, trying to figure out who's getting what information and what resources. I know the state is trying, but it still seems like information and resources are extremely fragmented. Uh, and so it does take all of us to, to, to come together and, and, and try to figure things out. Um, worked with, they, they worked as a good connector with the nursing homes and with the schools as well. Uh, so some of our, 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 our areas that we were, we were concerned with uh, early on, you know, we were early on this spring. Where were we seeing outbreaks? We were seeing them in, uh, we were seeing them in nursing homes, and we were seeing them, you know, potentially on college campuses. And that's what we were worried about this um, this fall. And while we did see some spikes, felt like having all of us on the same page and um, public health being really a, a, a good connector there helped us work together to have good plans in place so that if there was a spike, that we could bat it back down
0: haven't directly talked about COVID-19 much in this series, not because it isn't important or front of mind, but because we want to highlight the work, strengths, challenges of rural life in general. However, it would be disingenuous to talk with the CEO of an independent critical access hospital without talking about the pandemic. So we're going to come at it head on now. Jim talks about how they initially collaborated with other health centers and stakeholders.
3: Number one, uh, we were able to collaborate with uh, other other community partners to make sure that we really did have um, a good response uh, with the nursing home, with the college, with the schools, and then other businesses as they were um, as they were looking to implement some changes. Um, I think the other part that was extremely interesting about all this is that uh, the competitive barriers uh, among the other hospitals really did come down. And we found that everybody knew, we all realized very quickly that a surge in Waverly was going to affect Grundy and Waterloo and Sumner and Independence and everybody in, our, um, in, in a large area. And so we began um, talking about surge planning um, as a team and, and more as a region and less as a, whose banner are we? is our hospital under? It was very refreshing and it was very, it was very um, um, it was just refreshing to talk to to talk through that with everybody else. So we had some very detailed plans on what would happen if, um, say, Grundy Hospital had a major outbreak. Their hospital was overrun with uh, with patients. And, you know, quite frankly, like most rural hospitals like ourselves, we wouldn't be able to um, put 20 people on ventilators. How are we going to respond together? And um being led by Allen Hospital, we had, a, uh, we had a really good plan that would allow us to help one another out. So that was, that was very refreshing and I really did appreciate all of those conversations.
0: After all the planning and collaboration, Jim said they have hit capacity.
3: We've hit capacity uh, a, a few times and it's, it's, it's very hard. I mean, um, we're not accustomed to being at that level Uh, and again, we don't have the, we don't have the redundancy, um, the staff redundancies that a larger hospital will have. We don't have 10 nurses waiting in the wings that we can transfer over to a, to a particular department. We have the nurses on the floor. We have the one hospitalist. Um, so we're constantly, we're constantly monitoring and we're constantly trying to figure out, uh, you know, what's coming, what's coming next and trying to anticipate so that we can move, we can move what little, what little pieces we have to move around. Um, but our staff are tired and they're, they've been working extremely hard and we have nothing to offer our staff anymore. And so we're constantly going back to the well and saying, look, we need you to work one more shift. We need you to work overnight today. We need you to stay for a couple more hours. And, um, I'm, I'm just very thankful that our staff has been as willing to really run into harm's way, as you've heard, and maybe minimize their time with their families so that they can make sure that the hospital can continue to respond to the issues in the community.
0: Hospitals hitting capacity has been in the news quite a bit, but Jim explains what happens when they reach that limit.
3: When our floor is completely full and they need care, uh, typically what happens is uh, we put out a call to the local EMS departments and say, we can't take any more inpatient. We can't take any more inpatients. Um, It's it's usually not a big deal um, because if we're having um, a surge of patients pre-COVID, it was isolated to our area, and then you would be able to get somebody in a bed uh, somewhere else. So our ambulance would be able to take uh, the individual in our emergency room, or bypass us just right away and head right to the next, next emergency room and find a hospital bed. Um, what became difficult uh, during COVID was there were no hospital beds statewide. You know, at one point we took the last ICU bed at Mercy, I, or Mercy, Des Moines, and then they were shut down for the entire state. So we were taking our patients about two and a half hours from our hospital to another hospital. Um, trying to just find them a place to to be cared for, and so when that happens, we really did start running into some of those those pandemic um, pandemic measures. We are keeping people in the emergency room much longer than we wanted to. We're trying to discharge to home or to nursing home with other with some special instructions and and the triaging became um, much more difficult. And so if PUSH were to to have come to shove and if we were to have uh, had to take a real drastic measure, we would have shut down um, a majority of our other services and started housing patients down in our surgical suites um, and potentially in other locations within the hospital. Not something that we wanna do and ultimately, It is not as safe as being in a hospital bed, but it's still better than um, having a line of people uh, who are having heart attacks or who are in respiratory distress, standing in line at our emergency room door, waiting for a bed.
0: Think about what it means for a moment to have to go two and a half hours to the nearest ICU. That's a very long way. Now we're in the middle of winter. As I record this, there's a blizzard outside of my window. So that two and a half hours will take even longer. When COVID cases surge, all patients are
3: impacted. The way it was working, we were housing people in our emergency room for hours at a time. And people, I don't think people realize that we're we're at a point with COVID where, yes, there, there are still people dying and still people getting sick, but being overrun in the hospital with this many people with pneumonias that we're trying to take care of, Or who have to be in isolation and it takes that much longer to take care of them because you have to don and doff, you know, basically a whole biohazard to go into their room. That means that the person next door who is having heart palpitations isn't getting care as timely or isn't getting transferred as timely. And it's it's just. It's not as simple as just these are the people that are dying from COVID. No, we have ancillary deaths because we're, as a system, don't have the resources to care for everybody at the same time. And we have people that are dying because um, their care has been delayed. You have somebody with a, you know, that's having a stroke and that person's coming to our hospital and our emergency room is full and our floor is full and we're at, and we're at capacity. Then what Where I mean, where does, where does stroke patient go? So Stroke patient then gets in the car and has to go, has to go, you know, 45 minutes up to Mason city, um, or has to go somewhere else before we can get them care. I and mean, we're going to try to stabilize them the best we can, but, um, just like everywhere you can't, you can't take care of absolutely everybody right now to the, to the level that that they deserve.
0: I'm going to repeat that. You can't take care of everyone right now to the level that they deserve. I have so much respect and gratitude for Jim, all of his colleagues, and all of the public health professionals who have worked tirelessly for a year now, some without a single day off since early March 2020, to take care of patients and do whatever they can to keep our community safe. I'm going to let Jim wrap up today's episode with what he wishes people understood about COVID-19.
3: I think there's two things. I want people, so anybody who, Still feels like this is a joke and a hoax and overblown. It is not. There are people that are dying at our hospital of this every day. And there are staff here that are holding that person's hand and watching them die every single day. Okay. We have staff members here who are working extremely hard um, to keep the doors of this hospital open so that we can respond and save those that we that we can save. Um, but the hard work still needs to be done outside of here. So remember to wear your masks and social distance and take those things seriously so that um, we can continue to keep this at bay.
0: Thank you for tuning into this episode of Share Public Health. Thank you to the Injury Prevention Research Center, Iowa Center for Agricultural Safety and Health, the Healthier Workforce Center of the Midwest, the Heartland Center for Occupational Health and Safety, the Great Plains Center for Agricultural Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center, the Prevention Research Center for Rural Health, and the Rural Policy Research Institute. The theme song for this series is Walk Along John. It's performed by Al Murphy on fiddle, Mark Jansen on mandolin, Brandy Jansen on banjo, Warren Hanlon on guitar, and Aletta Murphy on bass. I learned these songs from a fiddler named Delbert Spray, who is from Cahoka, Missouri. A transcript, evaluation, and discussion guide for this episode are available at mphtc.org and in the podcast notes.